from McMinnville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that has quite a tale to tell you. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Silberg. And today's title is Whale Migration. Hey, Chad. Good afternoon, Mike. Hello. Hey. What are we talking about today? Well, you sent me a very excited text last week that I think you had just seen a whale. Yeah. And you wanted to talk about whales. And it just so happens that I have a friend who studies whales and other large marine organisms. Megafauna. Megafauna. Yeah. And I thought, God, if I could get her to come on the show, that would be amazing. And so she agreed. And so we have a special guest to answer all of your whale moving about the ocean kinds of questions. Kim is a research fisheries biologist at the Marine Mammal Laboratory stationed out of their office in Seattle with the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. And I'm super excited about this guest, Dr. Kim Getz, because she was my very first research field assistant when I was a tiny little newbie graduate student, and she was an undergrad, and she helped me out with a bunch of field research, looking at ants, which she naturally parlayed into looking at marine megafauna near the poles. That and makes so, sense. And I'm so happy that she's here today. So, Kim... Thanks for joining us and letting us pick your brain. Yeah, happy to be here. The only way I know to find whales is what you look for first is all these boats. So there are a lot of whale watching tours. <laughs> yeah, so if, oh, you, yeah. if there's a cluster of the boats, then you can look for the plume. Oh, right, so in watching all the whales, there are three things that people from the shore are lucky enough to witness, right? They, they watch them pop up and have the blowhole and sometimes if you see the blowhole and in the back for a long time they're about to dive in so then you see the tail pop in and sometimes if you're really lucky then they'll come up and breach out and so you know from that little exposure there it's hard to know what's going on what do whales do how do they live their lives well that's a great question it's funny that you bring up the kind of the whole surfacing thing that's often what we use some of the more difficult species to identify we'll use that exact thing that you just mentioned so for example like a minke whale versus a fin whale versus a blue whale, often um, they can be really tricky to sometimes decipher. And so it's kind of like how much back you see come out of the water, you know, because their fins can be somewhat similar. So that's a one of the identifying features and not all whale species will even, it, they're not known to what you're calling fluke. So when they bring their tail out of the water, it's, it's only, you know, humpbacks obviously very commonly do that. Some of the other species will, but a lot of whales don't really do that so much. So as far as what they're doing, completely depends on what is going on and where you see them. If a whale is migrating, a lot of times they're not eating or they're not eating a whole lot. So it's just more shallower transiting dives. If they're in an area where there's a lot of food, where is their foraging ground, they, you know, will do all sorts of really cool foraging dives depending on the species. So like one of my colleagues has attached something called a D tag or, you know, there's various other types of tags you can put on the animals, but they're basically a, th a 3D tag. So it's recording in all axes. So pitch heading and roll. And, you know, so some of these humpback whales, they'll go under the water and then they do these crazy elaborate circles and stuff. And so they do something called bubble net feeding. Oh, tell us about that. It's amazing. So, you know, see this a lot in Alaska. So when we're up in Alaska, you'll get into these areas with these kind of whale hot spots, and there's just a lot of food around. And it's what they do is they go around in like a circle and you'll, from what you see on the surface, you'll just see like all these bubbles in a massive circle start appearing. So it's what they're doing is like, usually these are like bait balls. And so they'll do these big, big, big circles. And then, um, and this is several of them. 
And then it's like a bubble curtain. So fish don't want to go through the bubble curtain. And then they're trapping the fish all come up through the center and their mouths will be open and just taking all the fish in. So, wow. so it depends on, on the species, on what they're doing. You get beaked whales. Beaked whales are all very, very, very deep divers. Sperm whales as well. They are often going after squid. And those guys, I mean, they're diving extremely deep and so dives can be over an hour. So it depends on where they are. You know, if they're in an area where they're just, you know, nursing and breeding that kind of thing, they'll be doing different types of diving. We're not diving. Sometimes, you know, like I've seen the right whales when they're, when after they give birth, they do these things where they just keep pushing their baby up to the surface, you know, trying to make sure their mm. baby breathes. Hmm. And so how are you seeing this? Are you like flying a drone out over the water? Are you in a helicopter and a plane? What's your vantage point when you're seeing these kinds of things? Usually I'm on a very large vessel, depends on the situation. So with the humpbacks doing bubble net feeding, I'm usually on some sort of boat-based vessel. Mm. We do drone work for other species, but in a very, very different environment. And before we started recording, you mentioned something about a baleen whale. What's a baleen whale versus the other alternative? Yeah. And what, what does that mean for how they live their lives? So there's two types or groups of whales. And first is the baleen whales, which are the mysticetes. And then there's the other whales, which are the toothed whales, which they're adonisetes. You know, actually all dolphins, for example, they're actually toothed whales. Okay. The two types of whales live their lives very differently. So the baleen whales, so those are the ones with the large, large plates in their mouth that they use as like a sieve. And so they go after usually kind of aggregated prey, like the copepods or the zooplankton. And then like they take a big, big mouthful and then they spit out all the water and are left with all the prey. And then you have the toothed whales, which are a little bit different. They obviously have teeth instead of baleen and they have echolocation. And so that means they're sending out a sound and listening for that signal back to know how far away their prey is, how far away other obstacles are. And they can keep putting that call out until they get really close to the prey. And then there are a lot of times in environments that they can't see well or things like that, where then they can just grab their prey. So the toothed whales do echolocation. Correct. Oh, okay. And the baleen ones, they're not, not. echolocating. Huh. No. So tooth whales would include, you said dolphins and orcas have teeth. Are, are they doing that as well? Yeah. Yeah. Would that also include sperm whale? Correct. Okay, cool. So you talked a little bit about where we find them. And so if you wanted to find whales, what are the environmental characteristics that you're going to be looking for? You don't know ahead of time whether or not there are whales there, but you know, based on a set of environmental variables, there's a good chance you might find some whales there. What are we looking for? Yeah. So it depends on what your target is. For example, when we're going, you know, we're hitting the shelf break. Now we're going to find this. And now we're on the shelf. We're going to find this. And so, for example. Wait, time out. Tell me a little bit more about that, about when we're on the shelf versus the shelf break. What are you talking about? What is that? So the continental shelf break. So basically, when we're on the continental shelf, it's shallower waters. It depends on where you are, how shallow that might be. But it's usually, you know, we're talking about when you get to the shelf break, changing from a few hundred meters of water to several thousand meters of water. So very, very deep, very, very quickly. And so once you get off the shelf, you get very different environment, very different species. Mm. And, and there's a lot of a big difference as you get further from the coast as well. So you get a lot of, you know, different animals where you're going to be really close to the coast. So for example, like even the little guys, so like the porpoise, 
purpose. So if you get, you know, a harbor porpoise versus a doll's porpoise, they have pretty different preferences on where they want to be. So, you know, one might prefer to be really close to shore and another one a little bit offshore. So they, they seem to have, you know, there's some sort of environmental segregation going on and whether that's from resource competition or just for some other reason that's that tends to happen. And so when you get out into the shelf break where it gets really, really deep, that's when almost immediately as you get to the shelf break and you're like, okay, now you're going to find tons of sperm whales. So you get these tons of resting, logging male sperm whales just hanging out at the surface. And then uh, you'll see beaked whales offshore. As you get closer to land too, you'll often get these big aggregates of humpback whales that tend to be foraging on the aggregated forage fish or, or uh, zooplankton or so. You know, and there's a lot of environmental features that drive these guys. And I think that's one of the things that we don't know a ton about other than we know certain things are attracting them. And whether that's my thought is, is I think a lot of these environmental features. So like, you know, when we're doing modeling, we'll look at how far away are they from the shelf or, you know, what is the sea surface temperature or, you know, what is the salinity or where's the mixed layer depth, which is an oceanographic property that often is where there's, you know, various thermoclines and things like that. So it's, it can attract prey there. And so most of these environmental features are honestly, I think they're just surrogates for what's attracting their prey, but, you know, we obviously don't know what's going on underwater with the prey. So these variables typically work. Hmm. So yeah, we'll look at, you know, bathymetric depth as well. We can do some modeling with all these different features and predict out, well, what is habitat suitability? And then, you know, validate those in various ways. But generally, like that's how it's done. And so, you know, just depends on the species you're looking at and on where you want to go look for them, I guess. Yeah. And so it strikes me that those kinds of things might vary through time. I mean, obviously, like where the continental shelf is and depth and those kinds of things are, are going to be pretty constant. But things like temperature, salinity, food availability, all of those kinds of things might vary rather considerably. And so is that likely what's driving their long distance movements, at least for some that do do long distance movements? Yes and no. I mean, the long distance movement are so long that, you know, yes, they're they're going into the northern parts often, depending on the species, you know, to breed and have their calves, but then are going south in the colder water to feed. So Wait, are you on the are you in the southern hemisphere at the moment? Maybe. Um, <laughs> did I say something that sounded southern hemisphere? But I just tend to think. Well, well you, you said, said north and south, south, so yeah, you said go south towards colder water. Oh yes, I was thinking of Antarctica. So, All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. In fairness, you've done a fair bit of work in Antarctica. Yeah. You were based out of New Zealand for a while, so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're going so, equatorly versus pole directions. Yeah. I tend to think very Southern based on like all the Antarctic. Okay. I just wanted to well, clear that up for yeah. the physicist. Yeah. Sorry. I, yeah. No, I picked that up and we've got a lot of listeners down in New Zealand and Australia. So yeah. is that right? Uh, it depends on your definition of a lot, but yes. <laughs> okay. Well, good day yeah. to all of us. <laughs> So should I use Sorry. some of my New Zealand words then? Should I be like, my science was underpinned by something? Of course, <laughs> yes. Sure, yeah. Give us like uh, the Kiwi yeah, bump. That's right. That's right. Sweet as. So that actually raises a question for me. So is it, I'm kind of imagining then whales in the Southern Hemisphere are 
not able to mate with whales in the northern hemisphere. I would think that they don't have a lot of contact, but there's kind of shifting. They're both kind of shifting up north and south throughout the, the year, I would think. Yeah, well, yes and no. It depends on what you're what exactly you're referring to, because there, you know, there are obviously like humpbacks, for example, you'll have many different stocks that might come together at one time or another. But those are usually, yeah, like the northern or the southern. But I'm not sure if there's situations where the northern and southern stocks per se are in the exact same area. But like you said, I mean, things are changing. We had, I don't know if you heard or not, but we had a beluga whale here in Seattle not too long ago. And a couple years ago now, there was a beluga in Mexico. So, I mean, things are changing. I mean, you know, doing work in the Arctic, certain species like killer whales are very, you know, infrequent. And now that the Northwest Passage is open, we get way more species that we wouldn't normally be seeing up there. So things are definitely changing. Hmm. I think that the beluga near Seattle, was that the beluga? It was like swimming down the Puget Sound or something like that? Yeah, it was a really cool story, actually, because we were concerned. So I mostly work on a cook and lip beluga population, which is an endangered stock. And it doesn't, it's it's completely isolated from the other beluga stocks around Alaska. And so because of the peninsula and every and genetically, so it's very genetically different. So they're listed as endangered. And hmm. the concern was that was the closest stock to this animal that came down this way and it was concerned because there's you know there's less than 300 animals left so we're like "Uh oh you know is it from that population and so I hung out for quite a while and it was really interesting because we'll collect water for environmental DNA samples as well so you know, as long as you get within like the footprint or the animal and you get some water, they did, you know, the eDNA on it. And it was it was super interesting, actually, because it wasn't from the Cook Inlet stock. It was actually from one of the Arctic stocks. Like, So it went way Whoa. out of its hmm. way to, to get down here. Can we pause then? So you're saying that if you get in the, the wake of the whale, you can actually collect some of the water and it's just like, what, skin cells or saliva mm-hmm. or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's like that's... skin cells. Okay. And so you can yeah. collect it from that. That's interesting. It's really interesting. We do that a lot with harbor purpose too. They're pretty difficult though, because you have to really get kind of in the footprint of the animal and they're fast. Mm. Yeah, so you can see how we're we're trying to figure out the stocks right now in Southeast Alaska for harbor purpose. And we found that there's actually several stocks and all based on eDNA. And so I'm guessing that you must do some sort of genetic analysis that uh, somebody who's not familiar with this would something like ancestry.com kind of thing where you like submit a, a DNA sample and you kind of compare the similarities of the genome of your specimen to other known ones, you know, like, oh, this sample has an affinity or looks most similar to this other group over here. And so that is that is that kind of the yeah, technology? We, we basically send our samples to a colleague at another NOAA facility, and she, that's what she does. And so she analyzes it, like, you know, compares it to the samples. And there's different ways to tell, like, you know, how similar it is to, or different from another stock and like whether it could be part of the same one or not. Do you use that kind of data then to draw a boundary around? what you would call a stock? Because I, yeah, I would that, imagine- Well, there's a, there's a lot of management implications too. And that's something we're actually in the midst of right now for Harbor Porpoise in Southeast Alaska. So for example, you know, we have to do something every year called SARS. So those are the stock assessment reports that the government puts out. I guess this is kind of just like a, a general- conservation kind of question, but you hear sometimes when people are like, well, this particular species is distributed all up and down this particular range. And so like, what's the big deal if that particular population goes away? If we want to at some point, can't we just like repopulate it? I mean, they're all the same species. If we put them together, they would interbreed. So what, why be concerned 
about species at the level of these subpopulations or stocks? Well, I think that's a bit of a leap to say. I mean, I could see people, you know, thinking that you could take, you know, like a beluga is a beluga is a beluga, like, right. you know, we can move things from where and there, but they, it's not that simple. I mean, there are many stocks of the same species that would not do that. I mean, you're talking about animals that are often very intelligent and have very strong family and social dynamics going on. And so, you know, it's, it's like killer whales, right? You know, it's like, there's so many different pods and they're very particular. And so it's not like you can just put a couple killer whales from different pods together and expect that even though they might be able to, on a physical level, have a viable offspring. It doesn't mean that's going to happen. Even of the beluga stocks, I mean, the, the one that I'm working on, the cook in the beluga, they don't leave Cook Inlet. They stay in that particular inlet all year round, but you get other stocks, they are migrating. They're migrating from the Arctic down quite a bit, depending on the ice and stuff. And so they have very different behaviors too. You know what I mean? It's not like you can take a cook in the beluga and put it up in the Arctic and it's going to know how to migrate back and forth, you know, for that population. Mm -hmm. So it, I mean, it's, it's not that easy. And there's some very endangered stocks as is, and they can't even get them to breed within their own, <laughs> their own uh, stocks. So, okay. So that, that's interesting. So I think it sounds like there are almost a bunch of behaviors and things that you might understand as like local cultural, I mean, to use the term culture loosely, right? Like this group of whales does these kinds of behaviors and interacts right. with the environment in this particular way. Yeah. And is that a thing that they're young learn? Yeah. So that's culture is something that used more and more in the context of whales. So for example, humpback whales have the whole thing where they have a learned song and they change it as time goes on, but then they not only change it as the time goes on, but then you have some humpback whales over here that are making a completely different song than some of the others. And so the song is definitely learned. When a lot of the whales, the humpback whales go to Tonga, you can hear the young males will be practicing their song and learning their song. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so they'll learn that to learn behavior, but it changes through time. And do you say now um, a lot of the people studying in this field that it is like kind of a cultural transmission type thing. And so it is, you know, it's like you couldn't take a humpback whale from one population singing a completely different song and put it in another population and think that that's going to work. Like It'd be like, you know, going to uh, a country that you don't know the language and just trying to fit right in. It doesn't hmm. work that easily. Yeah. That was kind of the analogy I was thinking, like being plopped into just a completely different culture and language and stuff and almost maybe even up to like a difference between like homo sapiens and neanderthals it's like yeah of course as a homo sapien myself i could visually probably identify if i were alive at the right time that's a neanderthal over there but you wonder if like some other scientist would be able to pick up on that difference and so mm -hmm. sort of to translate that to the whales maybe these differences are very, very real to them. Yeah. Even though they're hard things for us to discern because our lack of sort of whaleness, we can't pick up on those same cues. In these whales have a twang. That What's that? Yeah. These, these whales have a twang and these others are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Kim, you, you model where whales are and presumably a little bit, at least modeling on their travels and long range travels. So what are some of the factors that go into that sort of thing? Is it just as simple as food sources or 
or? So in order to know what an animal's preference is, you also have to know what it isn't. And so the way these sort of work is you'll have where the animal is in some way, shape or form, whether that be from tagging the individual so you know where the animal went or whether it's, you know, ship-based or aerial surveys, you'll have your positives, if you will, or like where the animal is, your presence. And then you, the way you kind of figure out what an animal prefers is you have to compare it with other, where it's not. So, you know, there's there's all sorts of different methods to come up with where they're not. And that's a whole different can of worms, but you're basically comparing those two. And so you're looking at those locations and looking at the environmental features of those locations. So saying like, okay, here's the environmental features of where they're not. Here's the environmental features of where they are. What's the difference basically? And, you know, as Chad pointed out, it can be really challenging because a lot of environmental features are static. They're not changing like bathymetry, but a lot of them are very temporal. So, you know, looking at sea surface temperature or like I look a lot at ice concentration and things like that that are going to change on a daily basis. And so it gets very computational intensive in the sense that you have to essentially get daily data and then you're sort of modeling out preference on a daily basis and then trying to combine all this. It gets really computational intensive, especially with the more dynamic that you're trying to and realistic you're trying to be with your data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could go on and on, but I'm not going to get super nerdy on you. So the fact that they can communicate such long distances, is that a trigger? I also imagine at some point not hearing my friends anymore and realizing, oh, I'm missing spring break. I need to go back to the equator because that's the time, you know, there's the food is running out here. I'd better make this big passage all the way down. Yes, they do go, you know, like, again, I'm thinking of Southern Hemisphere here, Antarctic. So like, you know, the animals will go to Antarctica to forage in the waters because it's very productive, lots of it. And then as the prey starts, there's kind of, I'm not sure it's entirely known what the trigger is that, oh, time to go north. Maybe communication helps them. They don't tend to go at all at the same exact time too. It's a bit of a trickle. And so oh, okay. it is also when they go up to the warmer waters to give birth and things like that. And so it's like, if you have a newborn baby, it physiologically would be probably much less demanding in a warmer environment. Mm. All right. Cause you're going to have less blubber and everything else when you're born. And they do, it really depends on the species. There are species where some of them actually won't migrate. Some of them will stay like bowhead whales in the Arctic right now. Like the, the local people up there were saying, there's some animals that are always here, but bowheads have a big migration. And so we did a whole huge study there to figure out photo ID, everything else. And, and there are some that stay there. And then there's some that, you know, they go in kind of a successive manner where like one part of the population will go, whether that be females, males, and then younger. And then, you know, so they, there's, there's a lot of complexity that goes into the migration too. And some animals just don't. Hmm. We see that with a lot of species. We don't really know why that is. Maybe they just found a place they like to eat. Maybe they're not pregnant. They're just hanging out, juvenile. Hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of different thoughts on that. And, and it could be driven, you know, by physiology as well. So, you know, I'm thinking of some of the seals I worked on in, in Antarctica, where we'd have seals that wouldn't go anywhere. And then we'd have other ones that would go way out to the shelf. And that was driven mostly because when they give birth, they lose like 40 some percent of their body mass, right? So they got to go out and really use that overwinter time to put on body mass, you know, but if you didn't, and you're just like, hey, it's chill, I can stay in the area where there's less food. So, you know, if you're fine, and you're like, nah, I could lose some weight anyway, whatever, like, you don't need to go that far, right? So it sounds like there is a lot of complexity that goes into who moves and when and where, and that to some extent that might be driven by differences in the physiological status among individuals. Totally agree, you know, and it gets a lot of things that happen too that are now changing, you know, with climate change and things where an animal, let's say it does need to get X amount of food and to improve their body condition. And they go to the place that they've always known to get that. And suddenly like, 
that's not there, then they have to spend, they may not know where to go or they're searching. And then of course that search behavior is, you know, causing them to expend energy. And if they're not finding food, you know, so, you know, I saw a lot of that. I tagged blue whales in New Zealand, pygmy blue whales and the area where they normally are, they just weren't there. It was just, the waters were so warm that we had like tropical tuna in our waters. And we had to go so far south to even get into waters where it was cool enough where the animals would be. And they certainly weren't as bad as they usually are. So, hmm. yeah, it's, it's changing a lot. So you mentioned tagging whales. What is that process like? I mean, I, like um, I've, I've watched Shark Week. I, I know things, but is it the same sort of thing? Is it like, do you have to catch it and bring it up and, and do that? Oh or God, that would never be permitted. No, there's a lot of different types of tags and a lot of different ways to attach stuff. So if it's a large whale and you're trying to find out information on, let's say, migration and you want it to last a while, that's one type of tag versus there's a lot of tags that are like suction cup that are just meant for like days and very fine scale. So like we're talking the 3D dimensional kind of stuff. But if you're trying to do more of a long-term thing and you want it to last months there's two types there's basically a spot and a splash tag and a, a spot tag is like kind of what it sounds like a spot it's going to give you a point a position via satellite you know x amount with you know it depends on how often it the it transmits but and then you get the splash tags which will give you information on diving as well and so if you're talking like a large whale like a blue whale or a humpback whale those are usually a type of tag that it's kind of a crazy system it's called an art system it's essentially like a modified line thrower you know like the line throwers that you throw a line from a boat to a boat and it's a modified one of those that you use and essentially the tag it basically goes into the whale but it just goes through just to the blubber it sounds kind of gnarly but you actually don't really even see much of a reaction to the animal and so then it just has there's a stopper on it so it obviously doesn't go super far and then it transmits via satellite and so and that ends up just kind of it's kind of like a splinter if you will where body will start just like kind of like i'm done with it and it kind of pushing it out yeah Yeah, exactly Hmm. so so, you know, the last usually a few months, it just depends on, you know, a lot of things, basically it, how well you attached it, the location, you know, they try to aim for a certain location and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So it's a pretty interesting process and it's, it's not foolproof by any means. It, if you, uh, if you miss, you're not getting your tag back. So there you go. Multiple <laughs> thousands of dollars into those. <laughs> so some of the things you were talking about earlier going into models of where you find whales and where you don't find whales, like comparing the variables here versus the variables there. It might be a decent segue into conservation considerations regarding whales, because I am a terrestrial ecologist and my bias sort of runs towards thinking about land and borders and plant communities as the first order of things and you, you know, you draw a border on a map around a plant community and then you sort of preserve things from there on up. But it it might be very different in an ocean where those things are much more fluid, so to speak. (laughs) Uh, So can you talk a little bit about what are some of the uh, challenges of conserving first such a large animal and second something in the ocean? Like how does the kind of work that you're doing inform how those decisions are made? Yeah, that is a very good question. And it is very complicated. You know, as one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, we, we're talking at a lot of these species are migratory animals. And so a lot of them, their full migration isn't within U.S. waters, for example. So, right. you know, you're dealing with multiple countries and it can be very, it just, it really depends on the situation. So, you know, we were closely with 
for example, with the Canadians, you know, and so for things like bowheads, you can work with DFO and, you know, the communication's really strong and work that way. But there's certainly other species and other countries where the government feels very differently about what should be protected and what's not. For, you know, like example, the vaquita are very, very endangered and there's all sorts of stuff going on with the Mexican government and we don't have a lot of control over it. And so there is one other thing that- Who are the vaquita? Are those like tiny little dolphins? Is that what those are? Yeah, they're they're these, they're the tiny little like porpoise out there. And there's only like, there's less than 10. (laughs) And, you know, it has a lot to do with uh, a whole situation out there with the illegal fishing and and a bunch of other things and the the cartels. And it's very complicated. Literally like Sea Shepherd and stuff and the NOAA boats that go down, they get shot at. So um, anyway, so one of the things that I'm involved in is the International Whaling Commission, the IWC. That's actually why I'm going to Japan in a couple weeks. And so with the International Whaling Commission, that's one of the things that we go through the different stocks and for populations, for example, that go into different countries, territories and stuff. If it's a something that, you know, is definitely a conservation concern, the IWC will reach out. There's a, a whole report that comes out every year that's really official and it goes across all the countries. And so it will have recommendations in there. They'll be like, we encourage this country to be working with whoever or this country to try to coordinate conservation benefits. And that does hold, you know, it's not to say that they're going to do it, but it does have some sort of more political power because, you know, the IWC is generally a very recognized entity, if you will. So what would you say are some of the biggest threats to whale populations? Like, does it kind of depend on what species and what population we're talking about? I'd say both of those are true. It does depend on the species you're talking about. There are a few things that are probably kind of more of an umbrella. You know, a lot of it is just really different climate effects. And there's also, you know, the, the amount of noise we're putting into the ocean and the pollution. You know, we get more and more, there's lots, there's more and more cases of especially like beaked whales and sperm whales that, you know, are stranded and they have like tons and tons and tons of plastic bags in their stomachs because, mm. you know, they are looking for squid and in the water plastic bags looks very similar to squid. There's more and more disease, things like taxoplasmosis, which we're introducing, you know, into the environment. So more animals are showing different signs of sickness and and things like that. So And there's also, you know, there's a situation too that, you know, depending on the species, they're all communicating at different frequencies. You know, one of the the hot topics currently is is with masking. So, you know, with with so much noise in the ocean now, depending on boat noise and seismic and various other things that are going on because, and so, you know, people are trying to figure out how much, you know, it's impeding whales' ability to communicate with each other. You know, it's like going to a really, really, really loud bar and trying to talk to your friend. You have to keep talking louder and louder and louder, but there's going to be some threat threshold at which you just can't communicate. What kinds of efforts, whether nationally or internationally, or conventions are in place to try to deal with that? Or or is there anything that is is done to try to deal with that again i mean I, I think a lot you know there is definitely a lot of information and recommendations and things that come out of the iwc but you know a lot of it's driven by what's in front of everybody right so like for example we have the north atlantic right well that there is so much work and effort being done they're very much in the limelight because they're in the shipping lane so they've done all these shipping speed restrictions they even moved shipping lanes and that kind of thing 
thing. So that's like something, for example, that's kind of like, there's a lot of people there, but then you get to things that like the North Pacific right whale, which there's not really a lot of efforts at all being done. And there's 32 or so plus or minus a few animals left, but they're not, you know, it's not really an area where there's a lot of people looking. It's not really a lot of like fishing interactions and stuff like that. So, you know, it's harder to get funding and resources to study those things because they're not in front of everybody. You know, you're not seeing hit animals wash up or ship strikes and, and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it's, it's very complicated because I think there are, you know, like I said, there's a lot of good information that comes out of the IWC, but there's not enough resources for everything that really needs to be done. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so thank you, Kim, for chatting us up about whales. Yeah, no problem. I love it. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rody Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes, email us at crisscrossingsci.gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or just hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. 